Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patty. This week we join the Doctor and Jamie as they encounter the wheel in space. We will be talking about the Doctor, Jamie, story-based companions, prominent characters and villains. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, as per usual, I will hand over to Paddington for the story recap. Let's get this wheel rolling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Corny humour, corny humour. Episode 1. The Doctor announces to a distracted Jamie that they have landed, but the external view screen doesn't seem to be working. He tries to use more power, but to no avail. Jamie checks the fault locator, but again it is showing all clear. The Doctor checks the environmental readings and says that it is safe, and he notes a large concentration of metal around them. The view screen suddenly starts to work, and they see a group of images depicting various scenery and animals. The Doctor says that the TARDIS is trying to warn them, but Jamie suddenly points out that the fault light has stopped working, and the control console overloads. The console room starts to fill with mercury fumes from the defective fluid link, and the Doctor says that they need to leave immediately. He opens a panel near the door and tells Jamie to hold on as the TARDIS starts to shake. He then opens the door and they tumble out, and the Doctor explains he removed the control rod for the time vector generator, which controls the dimensional circuitry of the TARDIS and turns the interior space to that of a normal police telephone box. This way, the fumes will dissipate quicker so they can repair it sooner. As they are waiting, they take stock of their surroundings, and the Doctor comments that they appear to be in the rocket section of some sort of spacecraft, indicating towards a nearby anti-gravity drive. After accepting a lemon sherbet to help quench his thirst, Jamie wonders what could be the danger that the TARDIS was attempting to warn them about. The Doctor notices a pair of oil treads on the ground at the nearby door and they decide to follow them. They reach the end of a long corridor and come to another closed door and the Doctor listens at it intently to see if there is something on the other side or not. He spots a nearby monitor that shows him the room beyond and it appears to be some sort of control room but it is completely empty. They decide to explore a small bit to see if there is any sign of the crew or the danger the TARDIS was warning them about. Unbeknownst to them, their presence in the corridor has activated a maintenance robot that starts to follow on after them. The search proves to be fruitless as they can find no signs of life anywhere. The Doctor then wonders if the danger they were being alerted to is the fact that the spacecraft they are in is unmanned and just drifting aimlessly through space. Jamie says that they should leave again, but the Doctor says they need to find Mercury to repair the defective link. Again, the search proves to be fruitless and they decide to go back to the control room. On the way, they help themselves to some provisions from a food replicator, and as Jamie comes to terms with the futuristic nature of their food, they strike up a conversation about Victoria. They then decide to take a quick break before continuing on in their attempt to get into the control room. Meanwhile, the maintenance robot locates the TARDIS and scans it before making its way back down the corridor towards the control room. The Doctor, meanwhile, hears it enter the control room and goes to investigate it, but finds the door still locked and the view screen no longer working. Inside the control room, the robot activates the engines and the resulting motion causes the Doctor to crash headfirst into the doorframe, dazing him and his pained cries wake up Jamie who rushes to help him. The Doctor says they need to retreat to the TARDIS despite their need for the mercury, but they find the door to the engine room locked. They retreat back to the room where Jamie was resting and they seal the door behind them. In the control room, the robot opens a long container that holds several silver orbs which float into the air and make their way down the corridor. Jamie looks out a nearby porthole and sees a large space station in the distance, but when he tries to show the Doctor, he discovers him gone. 
He's actually gone back to the engine room door where he attempts to use a control rod for the time vector generator to force the door open, but to no avail. He suddenly notices movement behind him and comes face to face with the robot. However, Jamie sneaks up behind it with a blanket and then throws it over the robot, obscuring its vision long enough for the doctor to make a run for safety. They go back to the room and the doctor hands Jamie the control rod to use against the robot if needs be. The robot attempts to cut its way into the room and Jamie uses the rod to destroy it before turning back to see that the doctor has passed out. On the space station, the crew have been observing the strange behaviour of the spacecraft. Station Chief Jarvis enters the command centre and informs the assembled crew that the craft is actually a supply ship called the Silver Carrier, which has been overdue for nine weeks. He says that due to its erratic behaviour, it could be a danger to them. The station astronomer, Tanya Lernov, says that she is picking up strange signals out near the Silver Carrier, which are actually the orbs released by the robot that float through the outer hull of the station. This causes air pressure to fluctuate in the station and makes Jarvis even more wary of the ship. His second-in-command, Dr. Jenna Corwin, asks what he intends to do, and he says he will use the station's X-ray laser to destroy it. Back on the silver carrier, the Doctor wakes up. Episode 2 On the space station, the communications team tries to get in contact with the silver carrier before Jarvis orders it to be fired upon. Gemma asks to speak to Jarvis in private, and they go off the floor. After they leave, Leo Ryan, one of the communications officers, approaches Tanya and they discuss Jarvis's eagerness to destroy the silver carrier, with Leo siding with the station chief, citing the fact that it is unlikely that anyone on board is alive. In their private conversation, Gemma pleads with Jarvis not to destroy the silver carrier, but he insists that it is a danger to the space station, which is designated W3, but he also calls the wheel. She counters his statement by pointing out if a tragedy struck the ship, then the automatic pilot would have kicked in to keep the ship on course rather than let it drift the near 80 million miles that it has. She begs him to do a full investigation, but he says that it is too risky. On the silver carrier, Jamie points the time vector control rod out of the porthole at the wheel and activates it, causing all the communications agents to remove their headsets in agony due to the severe static pulses it emits. Tanya says that the fault indicators all over her control panel are lighting up, and Leo scrambles everyone to action stations while sending for Jarvis and Gemma. They arrive and Jarvis orders those injured from reacting to the pulses to be taken to the medical bay before ordering the silver carrier to be destroyed. Tanya suddenly announces that there is a definite pattern to the pulses and it is coming from the rocket and so Jarvis orders two men to go and investigate the ship. Jamie spots the two men in their spacesuits approaching the airlock and he goes to meet them, urging them to help him with the doctor. They are brought back to the wheel where they are taken to the medical bay. In the command centre, Leo is told that there are strange readings coming from the hull which are momentarily affecting the scanner due to the magnetic interference. Tanya overhears this and brings up the earlier reports of drops in air pressure. She suggests to him that it may have something to do with the appearance of the rocket, but he tries to settle her nerves with a little flirting instead. Outside, more of the silver orbs float through the hull of the wheel. In the medical bay, Gemma is examining Jamie and informs him that the doctor has a concussion, but she doesn't think there is any serious damage done. She asks him their identities and he gives his own name and comes up with an alias for the doctor, calling him John Smith after spotting the name on a manufacturing label on a nearby piece of equipment. Gemma also sees the label and gives Jamie a suspicious look. She starts to question him about the crew of the Silver Carrier, but he says he doesn't know about them, telling her he was ill with a fever for days until the crew members from the wheel arrived. Jamie asks permission to leave and Gemma instead offers to organise a tour of the wheel for him. She tells him to find someone named Zoe in a parapsychology library. After he leaves, Gemma calls Zoe and asks her to keep an eye on Jamie as she gives him a tour and report back on anything she finds out. 
Jamie enters the library and sees Zoe orally inputting a data record into the library records. Zoe spots Jamie and laughs at his kilt, thinking he is wearing women's clothing. Jamie is offended by this, but Zoe doesn't seem to notice and starts to take him on the tour. She takes him first down to the control room for the x-ray laser. As they are being shown around by the senior engineer, Bill Duggan, Zoe starts to ask questions about the doctor, but Jamie avoids giving any direct answers. He instead starts to ask his own questions as they move on in relation to the wheel's purpose, and Zoe informs him that it is a multi-purpose hub used for reasons such as scientific research and a halfway point for travelling ships. They arrive back at the command centre where they are joined by Leo and Tanya, who inform them that the plan to destroy the silver carrier is still going to go ahead. Jamie sneaks back to the control room for the x-ray laser and starts to look around. In Gemma's office, Jarvis complains about the unease of the crew and says the appearance of the doctor and Jamie isn't helping matters. He asks her if she found out anything during the examination she gave each of them and she informs him that Jamie was lying about the fever as his blood work proved otherwise. She also tells him about the alias he gave for the doctor and the fact he asked for a glass of water but didn't drink it, something that a seasoned spacefarer would never do. She suggests that they could be stowaways, but Jarvis runs with the idea and says that they could be potential saboteurs. He then storms out of the room and goes to the command centre, where he is told that Jamie is missing. Jarvis then discreetly tells Duggan to follow on after him, after he leaves the room in order to find Jamie. Tanya notices this and voices her suspicions to a sceptical Leo, and says that she thinks whatever is going on has to do with the silver carrier. Back on board the silver carrier, two more orbs have arrived in the cargo hold, and they start to expand in size. As they grow, a figure can be seen inside before finally breaking through, revealing itself to be a Cyberman. Episode 3 Leo tries to ease Tanya's nerves by saying that the Silver Carrier will soon be destroyed. Meanwhile, in the laser control room, Jamie sabotages the circuitry of the weapon, rendering it useless, but he is caught by Jarvis in Duggan. Jarvis then issues a yellow alert to the wheel, ordering all guards to arm themselves and a squad to come to the control room. Leo tells Tanya that he has to go sign out the weapons to the guards and tells her to contact Zoe, who has been tracking a star in the nearby Hercules cluster that is on the verge of going Nova. As he leaves, she comments that he should have listened to her intuitions. Back in the Silver Carrier, the two Cybermen have fully emerged from the orbs and report back to their leader, a sentient computer-like device called the Cyber Planner, that Phase 1 and Phase 2, their arrival and undetected presence, have been successful, and so the Cyber Planner orders them to commence Phase 3 and report back once it is complete. In the laser control room, Duggan says that Jamie used quick-sealing plastic on the circuitry and gives a conservative estimate that it could take a week to repair, a diagnosis that infuriates Jarvis. Gemma comes and informs them of Zoe's calculations about the star, saying that it could lead to a meteor shower that could destroy the wheel without the laser to protect it. Jarvis leaves with Gemma to go back to the command centre, and the guards follow with Jamie. Shortly after they leave, Duggan spots something in the corner, but little does he know that it is actually a cybermat. He puts it in the cupboard moments before the repair crew come to help fix the laser. In the command centre, Jarvis continues to berate Jamie, thinking him to be a saboteur for a radical group, and Gemma asks why he did it. He simply responds that the doctor told him to protect the silver carrier. Later in the medical bay, the doctor is none too pleased that Jamie has left it for him to find a way out of their predicament. He then asks Jamie to fill him in on what happened back on the ship, as he can't fully remember. The one thing he does know is that he felt some sort of menace on the ship. In the command centre, Leo runs a simulation based on Zoe's predictions and confirms that her meteor shower would be on approach to destroy the wheel as a result of the star going nova. Leo then berates Zoe for her analytical nature, calling her unfeeling before storming off. In the laser control room, Duggan discovers that the Cybermat has gotten into one of the caches of Bernalium, 
the power source of the X-ray laser, and flies into a panic when he sees that it is completely corroded. While he is fretting, he fails to see the Cybermat leave. A technician comes in from Jarvis looking for an update, and Duggan says that they are making good progress and then dispatches the technician to the storeroom to check on the Bernalium stock levels. He then goes back to working on the laser, failing to notice the second Cybermat joined the first one. In the medical bay, Gemma gives the doctor a checkup and finds him to be in fine health, with the exception of the temporary memory loss due to the concussion. She then tells him about the approaching meteor shower, and Jamie again denies being a saboteur or having any prior knowledge of the meteorites. Zoe then joins them and immediately questions the doctor about how he piloted the silver carrier. Jamie teases her over the fact that she doesn't already know the answer, which prompts her to reveal her deductions that based on the ship's fuel capacity and the distance it veered off course, that it was refueled somewhere mid-flight. The doctor seems impressed by the young genius, but reminds her that purely logical thinking merely enables someone to be wrong with authority. However, he can't dispute the facts that something must have enabled the silver carrier to travel further than its fuel capacity would allow. Back in the silver carrier, the cyber planner informs the infiltration team that they have successfully managed to ionize the meteorites, which means that it will be drawn straight towards the wheel. The infiltration team replied that phase three is complete and that the cybermats have sabotaged the wheel's bernalium supplies. They then begin phase four. In Gemma's office, Duggan informs her about the complete sabotage of all the bernalium on board and informs her about the Cybermat as well. Gemma wonders how it could have gotten on board and she asks to be taken to see it. In the laser control room, the technician returns to inform Duggan about the rest of the stores, but he is attacked by multiple Cybermats. He manages to immobilize one with the quick set plastic, but he is overwhelmed and killed by the rest. Gemma and Duggan race down the hallway when they hear his screams and Jamie tries to go as well, but he and the doctor are being kept under guard and he is pushed back into the room. Gemma and Duggan arrive and find the technician's body, but no sign of the Cybermats, with the exception of the immobilised one. She goes to inform Jarvis and Zoe requests that the Cybermat be sent to the medical lab for examination. However, due to being completely encased in the plastic, the doctor and Jamie fail to recognise it. Instead, the doctor asks for theories from both of them, and Jamie says that there could be an actual saboteur on board and is using their presence as an opportunity to carry out their work. The doctor seems a bit sceptical, but says that they can use the x-ray machine to look inside the plastic and see what is there. They also good-naturedly tease Zoe over the fact that her logical thinking didn't factor in that x-rays can see through plastic. They scan the plastic and are horrified as they recognise the Cybermat. They realise that the Cybermen are involved and the only place that they could be is on the silver carrier. In the command centre, Jarvis, who doesn't believe the story about the Cybermat, berates Duggan for his perceived incompetence and says he will be sent back to Earth. He dismisses him and orders Leo to take over the efforts to repair the x-ray laser. He then tells Gemma to join him in his quarters. Before he goes, Duggan begs Leo and Tanya to be careful. In his office, Jarvis is ranting about everything that has been going on, but Gemma cuts him off and highlights all the strange events that have happened over the last few days and says that they could be all connected with the arrival of the silver carrier. Jarvis says that he has dispatched a team to investigate it as they speak. The investigation team, made up of Valence and Leilham, arrives back on the rocket and are hypnotised by the Cybermen, who tell them that they will act as their agents on the wheel. Episode 4 The Doctor informs Jarvis and Gemma about the threat of the Cybermen, but Jarvis scoffs at this story and says that the X-rays could have been doctored, but Zoe speaks up to say that she was the one who took them. The Doctor fills everyone in about who and what the Cybermen are, but again Jarvis voices his scepticism and refuses to accept the existence of the Cybermen. He says that if they were real, they wouldn't be able to get onto the wheel undetected, and he then storms out. 
Gemma is a bit more accepting of the Doctor's story, and she dispatches Zoe to retrieve Duggan so he can contribute to their discussion. She then echoes Jarvis' opinion that they wouldn't be able to get on board without being detected. Just then on the Silver Carrier, Valence and Nailon are instructed by to bring the Cybermen, who have hidden themselves in portable crates, back to the wheel. The two hypnotized men then carry out their orders and bring the infiltration team back with them to the wheel, along with a stack of Bernalium rods. They radio their discovery back to the wheel, which leads to the delight of many, including Jarvis, after he is told by Tanya. In the medical bay, Duggan confirms that Cybermat is the same thing that he saw earlier, and he is relieved that someone believes him. Zoe then says that she will escort him back to his quarters, as she has some new calculations regarding the meteor shower that she wants to test. After they go, the others discuss the Doctor's theory that the Cybermats came on board to weaken the wheel's defences, but he is not certain for what purpose. Jamie then goes to find Zoe and discovers her back in the library, recording her new calculations. After apologising for accidentally ruining her recording session, he follows her as she makes her way out into the corridor. She asks him why he destroyed the X-ray laser, but he evades giving her a straight answer in an effort to keep the TARDIS a secret. In the laser control room, Jarvis enters with Duggan and he informs Leo that he is still their best chance at repairing the X-ray laser as soon as possible. Duggan and a newly arrived technician named Chang inform the others that they can take a well-deserved break whilst they continue working on the laser. Back at the lab, the Doctor and Gemma are getting to know each other and he starts to ask her about Jarvis. She says that he is a very hard-working man but tends to avoid thinking outside the box and has trouble accepting unnatural phenomena. She also says that with everything going on, he has been behaving more and more erratic, and the Doctor comments that he wonders what will happen when Jarvis reaches his breaking point. The Doctor then tries to leave so he can help stop the Cybermen, but Gemma refuses to let him leave without Jarvis's permission. Just then, Jarvis arrives and says that everything is going fine, a sentiment that he has been expressing to any crew member that he meets whilst ignoring any questions that they try to raise. It is plain for them all to see that his grip on reality is slowly fading. In the laser control room, Chang informs Duggan about the newly arrived cache of Bernalium and Duggan tells him to retrieve it. Chang goes to the cargo hold where he is attacked and killed by the Cybermen, whilst Valens and Lalem watch on. One of the Cybermen disposes of the body in a nearby incinerator, whilst the other orders the hypnotised humans to bring the Bernalium to Duggan. The use of the incinerator is noticed by Tanya and after telling Leo about it, she enters it as another anomaly in the ship's log. Valence and Nathan return to the laser control room and Duggan cheerily greets them. They ask him several questions about the repairs he is doing and if the X-ray laser will be ready before the meteorites arrive. He says he will be done in about six or seven hours and he goes to enter some of the Bernalium rods. When he turns back to them, he comes face to face with a Cyberman who immediately hypnotizes him and informs him that the wheel must be protected at all costs. The Cyberman tells him that they will carry on repairing the laser and they dispatch him to the command center. In Gemma's office, Zoe comes and tells her about an encounter she just had with Jarvis. She informed him about the calculations and the new dangerous anomaly she discovered in them, but he ordered her to forget them. Zoe then becomes despondent when she states that she finds it hard to express her emotions due to her intense training for her role, but Gemma reassures her that she will learn to be more empathetic. Meanwhile, the Doctor is being given a guided tour of the rest of the station by Leo and Tanya. When they are distracted, the Doctor and Jamie discuss how they will get the mercury they need in order to repair the TARDIS. Suddenly, Zoe appears and recounts her experience with Jarvis, and the Doctor echoes Gemma's own sentiments that Jarvis is no longer fully in his right mind. The Doctor then asks about the repairs on the laser, and she informs him of the Bernalium supply that was brought over from the Silver Carrier. 
This alarms the Doctor and he goes to Gemma and tells her that the Cybermen are on board and they will have potentially hypnotised a number of people on board already. Gemma counters this by saying that all crew members are given drugs to ward off such brainwashing as well as a microchip injection containing something called a Salinsky capsule, a relay that alerts its host to external effects on the brain. She then asks Tanya to check on the status of everyone's capsules and as she does so, Duggan enters the room, ignoring all attempts to communicate with the others. Tanya informs the others that there is brainwashing going on, but before he is discovered, Duggan rushes to a control bank and electrocutes himself. The doctor then leaps into action and takes control of the startled crowd of station personnel. He says that the Cybermen are on board and he informs them that they need additional defences and he tasks Leo and Tanya to construct small metal plates to be worn at the base of the neck. He then tells Jamie if it is time for them to go hunting. Zoe offers to help Leo and Tanya but they turn her down, once again leaving her at a loss for what to do. The Doctor and Jamie go to the cargo hold and they begin to search for clues to the Cybermen's whereabouts. As they are doing this, they fail to notice the Cyberman descending the steps towards them. As the Cyberman descends, the Doctor finally notices it and pulls Jamie into hiding behind a nearby stack of crates. They observe as the Cyberman picks up a crate of Bernalium and then leaves, allowing them to come out of hiding. They begin to question the motives of the Cyberman, as they could have easily destroyed the wheel by now. The Doctor realises that the Cybermen don't require oxygen to survive, and he uses a nearby console to communicate with the command centre and suggests that they lock all of the airlock doors to prevent any interference by the Cybermen. Gemma agrees and dispatches Leo to make sure it's done. Tanya, still wary of the travellers, asks if Gemma trusts the Doctor, to which she replies she does, but she can't say for certain why. As they are talking, Jamie spots a Cybermat and the Doctor asks Gemma to layer their communication with a specific audio frequency. As this is being set up, another Cybermat enters the room and the Doctor urges the command centre to hurry. The frequency is then pumped through the speakers, which causes the Cybermats to malfunction. Leo then comes back and Tanya reports unexplained surges coming from the powerhouse. The reason for the surges is revealed to be the Cybermen, who have set up a small base there and are now communicating with the Cyberplanner. They report the destruction of the Cybermats and the complete repair of the X-ray laser, and so the Cyberplanner orders them to take over the station. In Jarvis's office, Gemma is trying to get Jarvis to snap out of his mindset and presents him with the Cybermat but it affects no change in him and he leaves. Gemma and the Doctor then take the stock of the situation and she hopes that the newly repaired laser will be online soon enough to repel the meteorites. In the interim, they are forced to rely on the ship's force field. She also comments that there is a magnetic field around the office which should hopefully repel any Cybermen looking to take Jarvis away. The Doctor encourages her to officially take control of the wheel until the crisis is over, but she is reluctant. Out in the hall, Zoe laments that her education and upbringing did not prepare her for the real world, where logical thinking doesn't always go to plan. Jamie tries to comfort her, but to no avail, as she continues to say that once the crisis is over, she doesn't know what she'll do. Meanwhile, Leo has been trying to contact the powerhouse, but all staff inside are dead at the hands of the Cybermen. A technician named Flanagan enters the main room of the powerhouse and is greeted by Leitham and Balance. Flanagan notices Leo's incoming message and goes to answer it, but he is stopped when Balance pulls a pistol on him. A scuffle then breaks out and Flanagan is eventually subdued by Laylam while Svalens retrieves the pistol to shoot Flanagan with. However, at the last moment, Flanagan spins around so that Laylam gets hit and dies. Flanagan then tries to escape to freedom but is caught and hypnotised by one of the Cybermen. The Cybermen question Flanagan about the force field and the command centre and he tells the Cybermen it will only be controlled from within the command centre itself. The Cybermen then tells him to dispose of Laylam's body. In Jarvis's office, Jarvis's condition has worsened and he starts to refuse food offered to him by Zoe. 
Everyone's attention is drawn to the communications desk, where Leo tells them that the meteor shower is bigger and faster than they expected. Flanagan then communicates, saying that the laser is operational and that there is a fault on the line, hence the gap in communication. The meteorites continue their rapid approach, and the laser is test-fired to everyone's satisfaction. The doctor finally gives a theory as to what is going on and says that the Cybermen manipulated the star to go nova and cause the meteor shower. They then use the Cybermen to sabotage the Bernalium, which would then cause the crew of the wheel to search for replacement supplies, which they found on the silver carrier. The Cybermen could then gain access to the wheel via the investigation crew, and once on board, allowed the crew to repair the laser to defend against the meteorites and take over once the threat had passed. The doctor asks Jamie for the time vector generator, but he says he left it in the doctor's pocket. He does not have it, and they realise that it must have fallen out as he was being moved from the silver carrier. The doctor says that Jamie will need to go back to the ship to retrieve it, and the young Highlander reluctantly agrees to go, after the doctor says that he is too busy to go himself, and lays the blame for losing it in the first place at Jamie's feet. Gemma arranges for Zoe to accompany Jamie over the ship and ignores his protests. After they leave, Leo confronts the doctor about Gemma's decision and blames him for putting all their lives in jeopardy. Meanwhile, the Cybermen are relaying the latest developments to the Cyber Planner, who instructs them to implement Plan 3 to overcome the force field around the command centre. One of the Cybermen orders Valence to follow it. At the entrance to the airlock, Jamie and the others find Latham's body on the floor, apparently dead. Jim instructs Zoe where to find the equipment for their spacewalk, and Jamie gives her his pistol to keep her safe. After they go, Jimmy hears someone coming and goes into hiding. She sees the Cyberman lead Valance into the room and order him to add an ozone capsule to the air supply for each section of the wheel, which will kill everyone. Gemma messages through to the command centre to warn them, but the doctor warns her of a Cyberman approaching her from behind her. She shoots at him, but to no avail, and the doctor watches in horror as the Cyberman kills her when she tries to escape. Outside, Jamie and Zoe are making their way to the silver carrier when they notice a group of meteorites heading straight towards them. Episode 6 The X-ray laser hits the meteorites and destroys them, but the shockwaves hit Jamie and Zoe. The doctor and Tanya beg Leo to be more careful, but he says that his primary concern is to destroy the meteorites. The doctor turns to Tanya and says that they must trust in Zoe and her calculations that they will be safe. The last of the meteorites is destroyed, but Leo says that they will not be able to pick up any sight of Jamie and Zoe until the dust debris clears. Leo issues orders to the staff to be on alert for any other debris, and he then berates the doctor for sending the young duo out in the first place. The doctor says that it was a necessary course of action in order to retrieve something from the ship. He then says that they need to switch to sectional air supplies due to Gemma's warning, and he sadly informs Leo and the others that she is dead. Before anyone can say anything, an alert comes true that another shower of meteorites is inbound. As everyone takes up their action stations, no one notices Jarvis slip away. The Bernalium rods powering the X-ray laser burn out just as the last few meteorites approach, forcing the wheel to switch to an antimatter field projectors to turn the last few of them away. The crew celebration is cut short when the Doctor notices Jarvis is gone. They try searching for him via the security cameras, and they watch as the Cyberman approaches and after a brief struggle, kills him. In the oxygen supply room, the Cybermen are told that their plan to poison the air supply can't work as the station has switched to sectional air supplies. This information is related to the Cyber Planner, who calculates that someone on board must have encountered the Cybermen before and knows their methods. It then requests that all available information on the crew be sent to it. On the Silver Carrier, Jamie brings Zoe a drink to refresh herself after their ordeal in space. He then describes the time vector generator to her and they set off in search of it. Jamie eventually finds it, but is called over to a view screen by Zoe, which shows the Cybermen ordering Valance to mentally project the faces of everyone on board 
so that the cybercrater can identify them. He eventually projects an image of the doctor, but is unable to give them his full name. The cyberplanner identifies him as the one who stopped them multiple times before and orders that he be killed. This order is overheard by Jamie and Zoe, who immediately start to make their way back to the wheel to warn the doctor. Back in the command center, Leo and the doctor discuss the potential motives for the Cybermen's infiltration of the wheel. They are then alerted to an incoming vessel, which the doctor states is more than likely a Cyberman ship. Leo then asks his subordinate, Enrico, to contact Art, but he says that the communication equipment was damaged when Duggan killed himself and that it needs to be repaired. The only issue is that the spare parts for it are in the powerhouse. Tanya presents the schematics for the wheel so that Leo and Do the Doctor can find the safest route to the power room, which will still be dangerous as they have no idea where the Cybermen might be. They get an incoming message from Flanagan, who tells them that he has trapped several Cybermen in an equipment storeroom, but they are slowly breaking out. Leo tells them that they intend to go to the powerhouse and asks him to keep them trapped for as long as possible. The Doctor then volunteers to go, and Flanagan tells him that he will meet him in Corridor 6. However, once Flanagan signs off, the Doctor says that they need to capture him as he is suspicious of him, and he thinks that he will be led into a trap whilst Flanagan returns to the command centre. He then makes his way via the ventilation system to the powerhouse and gets the necessary spare parts, as well as some mercury for the TARDIS fluid link. Before he leaves, he starts to tinker with a piece of machinery. Jamie and Zoe arrive back at the ship, and after pausing briefly to mourn the loss of Gemma, they make their way slowly back into the main corridor. They encounter Flanagan, who tells them to follow him. Meanwhile, in Corridor 6, the Cybermen release the Doctor has given them the slip, and Valance tells them about the ventilation pipe that leads to the powerhouse, and he leads them towards it. True to the Doctor's word, Flanagan returns to the command centre, but before he can do anything, Leo and Enrico incapacitate him by putting a metal plate on his neck, which the Doctor had earlier said would interfere with the Cybermen's control of him. Jamie then asks about the Doctor, but the Doctor messages in and tells Jamie to join him in the powerhouse. Jamie warns him about the trap, but it is too late as a pair of Cybermen appear in the room behind him. The Doctor cuts the signal and then turns to face his attackers, asking them why they had dug and sabotaged the communication equipment. They reveal that he was only supposed to damage it enough to prevent incoming communication, and the Doctor deduces that they needed the outgoing radio signal to guide their invasion fleet from the wheel to Earth. They then move to attack him, but he activates the machine that he was working on, which creates an energy field that deactivates one of them and prevents the other one from using its chest weaponry. The Cyberman then leaves just as Flanagan and Jamie appear by the ventilation pipe. He takes the time vector generator from Jamie as he intends to use it to boost the power of the X-ray laser so it can destroy the incoming Cyberman ship. Jamie and Flanagan then arms themselves as they prefer to fight off Valance and the remaining Cybermen. They make their way into the loading bay where Flanagan pretends to still be under the control of the Cybermen's control and says that he captured Jamie. While the Cybermen's back is turned, the duo incapacitate Valance and Flanagan uses the quick second plastic to attack the Cyberman, which renders it completely immobile. However, as it is struggling, it manages to open the airlock to allow a squad of Cybermen to enter. Flanagan shuts the airlock again, but one of the Cybermen manages to keep it open. Jamie urges Flanagan to use the quick set plastic against it, but Flanagan says that the can is empty. Outside in space, hundreds of Cybermen flow towards the wheel as their ship continues to approach the space station. However, the Doctor manages to get the X-ray laser ready, and it successfully destroys the Cybermen ship. In the loading dock, Flanagan turns on the antimatter field projector, which blasts the remaining Cybermen back into space. Later, Enrico manages to get in contact with Earth, and Leo gives a report. Meanwhile, Zoe has brought the Doctor and Jamie back to the Silver Carrier, but is upset when they don't explain how the TARDIS works. 
The doctor goes to refill the fluid link, and Jamie says an awkward goodbye to Zoe before joining the doctor. Jamie asks if they are leaving, but the doctor notices Zoe attempting to hide in a chest near the doors. After being called out, she demands to be taken with them. The doctor then tests her resolve by mentally projecting images of the types of things she may encounter if she goes with them, starting with the Daleks. She watches Stoneface as a Dalek kills a man. End of the story. Now that is the story recapped, we're going to go over to the trivia spot. What do you got for us this week? The air date for this story was the 27th of April to the 1st of June, 1968. The writer of this story is David Whittaker, though the story was based on an idea by Kit Petler. This is the seventh story we've seen from David. His others are The Age of Destruction, The Rescue, The Crusade, The Power of the Daleks, The Evil of the Daleks and The Enemy of the World. We have one more story left with David, which is going to be The Ambassadors of Death. Ooh. The director for the story is Tristan Devere Cole. I think that's how you pronounce his name. This is Tristan's only Doctor Who directing credit, likely because of his bad relationship with producer Peter Bryant. Tristan and Peter apparently clashed on set because Tristan preferred to talk to the writers and the script editor about making changes and not to the producer of the show. Peter has also alleged that Tristan went over budget in his directorial work on the wheel in space when in actuality he delivered the story within budget. So it seems that there was a little bit of bad blood between the two. Yeah, just a tad. Yeah, and so Tristan never came back. Only episodes three and six of this story exist in the BBC archives. Loose Cannon did, of course, fill in the missing episodes using surviving audio and tally snaps, and so too did the BBC. So if you have access to BritBox, you can watch the story from beginning to end with the BBC reconstructions filling in for the missing episodes. If you don't have access to BritBox, then obviously the Loose Cannon guys are amazing and you can watch their stuff. Yes. The working title for the story was The Space Wheel, which, to be honest, makes just about as much sense as The Wheel in Space does. Originally, the story was meant to be quite different. It was meant to be a Dalek Cybermen confrontation story. Ooh. Terry Nation said no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> However, he did concede what I would deem to be a major concession. Bear in mind, the last time we saw the Daleks, we said that was possibly our last time seeing them ever. Because obviously Terry was wanting to do independent stuff with them. Yeah. What he did say was that the BBC could create future Dalek stories, which, you know, at the time, they weren't even sure they were going to be able to do. The only thing is that Terry wanted sort of first refusal on any scripts. Hmm. Um, So any script writing work, Terry wanted first refusal on it on any Dalek stories. There's only very Marvel Studios, Sony Entertainment about this whole thing. (laughs) A little bit. Just a smidge. Just a smidge. Meanwhile... Kit Peddler, who was involved in the original idea for the Cyberman Dalek story, he was brought in to do a different story. So he brought this entirely different Cyberman story to the table. And he was teamed up with David Whitaker to bring his skip to form. So David gets the writing credit, but Kit gets a from an idea by Kit Peddler. Mm. Interestingly, although she only appears in the beginning of episode one 
as a reprise of the end of Fury from the Deep, Deborah Watling did actually get credit for this story. And in the BBC version that I watched anyway, um, they do the cast, like they do the Doctor and then they do the cast in order of appearance. Yeah. So she actually has second billing under Patrick (laughs) because you see her first in episode one because the reprise from the end of fury from the deep and meanwhile poor old was it jacqueline hill gets no credit for the episode she didn't appear in despite the fact she was a series regular yeah back in the sense right yeah crazy Longtime doctor who fans will notice that this story features the first use of the doctor's alias john smith so thank you jamie this is something that we will see again. And to be honest, I had no idea where it came from before the story. So this was an interesting observation for me. Now, at the end of the story, you mentioned that the Doctor shows Zoe some clips of what they could be facing. And she sees a Dalek kill a man. Yep. That clip is taken from the Evil of the Daleks. And the reason why it's there is because they had planned to run the Evil of the Daleks next as a rerun so you have this end of season story and then they were planning on running evil of the daleks as a rerun after it so the idea was that zoe would be watching essentially the evil of the daleks which is like this weird sort of proto clip show episode that we always get like you know around uh, the latter end of maybe a second or third season you're going to do like a flashback episode or whatever yeah but that I actually have an issue with that clip. Mm. It's taken from the end of episode one of Evil the Daleks. Yeah. The doctor didn't see that guy get killed. No. So how could that memory be there? If that's the one thing you picked up on in this story <laughs> as being, huh? <laughs> what the fuck is that? Then then you're doing good. Like No, you know? no. Like, it, is a, it is a pet peeve of mine that when you are recreating something, like in any like form of movie or whatever, if footage of the event you are recreating exists, please, for the love of God, keep it within a certain realm of, you know, similarity. Ahaha, ahaha though. Ah-ha-ha. The doctor wasn't there. No. He didn't see it. However, he is using a time machine to project the image. No. He it, knew the dialect killed the man. So the TARDIS was able to show it. If he's using the, the time TV from uh, the chase, then I'm on board with it. If it's I, think, just, I think the TARDIS may have like merged the two things together. Right. It was just a sort of like, you know, projector screen and here's what happened previously. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Well, like, bear in mind, like, I mean, any of these flashback episodes like wasn't there one in tng where like it was all in riker's mind as he was in sick it was like end of season two they did like the clip show episode yeah uh yeah because it was pulaski was there and it's like well none of this stuff is from riker's perspective (laughs) (laughs) like none of it (laughs) (laughs) anyway moving on from paddy's weird pet peeve it's not weird If you're a fan of Star Wars, you may recognize the spacesuits that Jamie and Zoe wore. And you actually may recognize them from a previous story as well. I think they were in Tenth Planet. Mm -hmm. They were reused by Bosk, the sort of 
Uh, Trocodile looking bounty hunter thing. Tradoskin, I think that's his species. Good for you. Well, I wanted to play a Tradoskin bounty hunter in a Star Wars RPG at one point. So ah, uh, okay, yeah, cool, yeah, him. That yeah. that's their suit. Patrick doesn't appear himself in episode two. He was on holidays, as is prone to happen. So instead, we only see the Doctor unconscious. And that was Chris Jeffries doubling up for Patrick as the unconscious body. Several characters were renamed for the story to give the crew more of an international feel. And this is something that we've gotten from most of the sort of future space stories. We had it in the moon base. We had it in Tenth Planet a bit where they want to have this sort of multicultural feel to the future. I think anything involving Cybermen. Also true. So, some name changes. Uh, Gemma Corwin was originally called Nell. Don't know why. Tanya, uh, her name was changed to Lernov. It was originally Lerner. Tom Stone was promoted and rechristened Captain Leo Stone. And Harry Carby became Enrico Casali. <laughs> Uh, Also, Ken was switched to Chang. Give it more of a multicultural feel. Meanwhile, Flanagan just stays Flanagan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I will say one thing, right? Yeah. Doctor Who in the 60s does a a great job at saying like, oh yeah, so like all the countries came together and it's a unified Earth space thing or whatever. My God, the accents are horrible half the time. <laughs> well, Particularly Enrico's in this one stands yeah. out, and so does Flanagan's. But. Yeah, see, so, presumably you have a cast note for Enrico as to who plays him. I don't, because we're not discussing Enrico as a character, uh, so I didn't include him. So Enrico is played by uh, Donald Lewin, I think, who plays Grand. No, sorry, Donald so- Donald Sumner Sumter, who plays Grandmaster Lewin in Game of Thrones. Ah, <laughs> cool. And he's not he, a grand maester, he's just a maester. Oh, sorry, Maester Lewin. But he he's also in the Sarah Jane Adventures. He, he was? Yeah, he's the weird spooky uh, estate ghost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, under, I'm underselling a really, really good story by you. Like, you it's really a, are. It's a weird spooky estate ghost. It's like an, like an auctioneer that haunts a fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Just going, buy this house, buy this house. <laughs> anyway, yeah. on to the cast that we will be discussing, because we're, we're not discussing Enrico in any great detail. So as Jarvis Bennett, we have Michael Turner. This is Michael's only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include Sherlock Holmes, The Moonstone, Emergency Ward 10, The Avengers, Zed Cars, Barlow at Large, Crown Court, Dixon of Doc Green... And the new Avengers. So, great bingo card representation there from Michael. Absolutely. Michael passed away in 2012. As Dr. Gemma Corwin, we have Anne Riddler. This is Anne's only on-screen Doctor Who acting credit, though she does appear in the Big Finish audio story Master. So, she did a little bit of other Who work. She wasn't hired for episode six because, um, as Paddy mentioned, Gemma was dead. So instead, they used a body double and photographs of her from the previous episode. Anne's non-who credits include Up at the Villa, Wyatt's Watchdogs, Strike at Rich, Terrorhawks, 
Kizzy, Tom's Midnight Garden, Zed Cars again, and Dixon of Doc Green again. Anne passed away in 2011. As Leo Ryan, we have Eric Flynn. Again, this is Eric's only Doctor Who appearance. His non-Who credits include No Hiding Place, As You Like It, Out of the Unknown, The Avengers, The Caesars, Ivanhoe, Empire of the Sun, and Peak Practice. There's a possible misconception that Eric Flynn is the son of Errol Flynn. He isn't. They're not related. <laughs> He's like the wish the wish.com version of Errol Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this on the TARDIS fan wiki and they actually had to call out like misconceptions about the episode. People think that Eric Flynn <laughs> is related to Errol Flynn. He's not. <laughs> Eric passed away back in 2002. Lastly, as Zoe Harriet, our new companion, we have Wendy Padbury. So Wendy was born in December 1947, making her 20 when she first appeared on Doctor Who. She first became well known in 1966 when she joined the cast of the then long-running soap opera Crossroads. She said that she came very close to Fraser and Patrick and she has great stories of Pranks, which seems to be very common with Fraser and Patrick, as we saw from Deborah, and just lots of practical jokes they played on each other during rehearsals. Uh, one of the ones that was on the TARDIS wiki that I find hilariously funny is they were filming an episode where she was in a kilt. Apparently, in some story, she was kilt. Um, and she fell asleep. Patrick came up, undid her kilt. And then stepped back, made a noise to wake her up, just as the vicar of the church that they were filming in walked in the door. What is it with, like, the... They're not sexist jokes, not even sexy jokes, but they're, like, mildly inappropriate jokes, shall we say, that are played on the set of Doctor Who. I, I, I get the impression like, that she probably got her revenge by pantsing him in front of a bus full of nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy's contributions to Who do extend beyond her portrayal of Zoe on screen. She's done a number of productions for Big Finish, both as Zoe and as other characters. After leaving Who, her other credits include Free Wheelers, Emmerdale Farm, something that blew my mind, right? She was in the short Super Ted, Super Safe with Super Ted. And I was like, oh my god, I loved Super Ted as a kid. Super Ted was amazing. Do you know Spotty from Super Ted? I was never a Super Ted kid. I, I you never, never saw Super Ted? Super Ted was saw, great. Spotty Ted. from Super Ted? Mm-hmm. John Pertwee. I did not know this. I didn't realise he was Rosal Gummidge until I actually, you know, I think met you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so she was in a TV short of Super Ted. Where I think she played John Pertwee's, like, character's sister. Okay, and she was also in the bill she later went on to become a theatrical agent I think she's the second person to do this yeah didn't Jackie Lane Lane did it Jackie Lane did it as well yeah and she also represented former Who actors including Nicholas Courtney and Colin Baker and didn't Jackie represent Tom and Janet Fielding Janet no she definitely uh, represented Janet Fielding I don't know about Tom but definitely Janet apparently Wendy also helped discover Matt Smith when he was at the National Youth Theatre. She's just doing all the Doctor Who shit. <laughs> and that, that's 
uh, is that kind of it's kind of strange seeing as how Matt Smith took a lot of his inspiration from Troughton, from mm. the Troughton era. Wendy is now retired and she lives in France. It'll be interesting to get your take on this, right? Because for a lot of people, this is the sec. This is the second Doctor Tardis team. Like whenever, mm. whenever they, whenever it comes up in discussion, it's the Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe. So for your first round, it'll be interesting to see, like you know, if you would kind of maybe like overly agree with that assessment, but maybe just differently for you, like would you be more along Team Two or Team One type thing? You know, I'll tell you this now. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on this story. Right. Yes. Because, and we'll get to this. Zoe's involvement in this story is very, very different from what Victoria's was. Yeah. But next week, ask me, and we'll circle back around to this. Yeah, if I can remember, because you know me, <laughs> shite memory. Like, no, no. But if it comes to important stuff, I have a terrible memory. When it comes to everything else, like you could probably remember what I was wearing the day we met, or something fucking weird like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember what I wore last week. Like. Yeah. Well, I, I can't remember who I was with before. I did like the Father Ted thing. Do you remember you were wearing your blue sweater and they were convinced I was telling them that they wore a blue sweater the first time I met them? I was like, no, it's a joke. Thank you very much for the trivia, uh, as always. Some very interesting stuff. Uh, so we're now going to come on to the meat and bones, uh, or the meat and potatoes. And no, sorry, that's something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got Sherlock Holmes in my head. Uh, so we're coming on to the meat and bones of the Time Traveling Team podcast, which is the character discussion. So we've got the Doctor, the companions, both regular and story-based, prominent characters for those that kind of aren't really villains or companions. And then we have, of course, villains. So, starting off, we have the man himself, the doctor. <laughs> I'll, I'll start. <laughs> you can start, because I'm going to rant, so you can start. Yeah, cool. Right. I get that he is sad. As mm. is pointed about that, that very lovely parting line, I cared for her too. As if he said cared in the past tense. Yes. However, your grief does not give you permission to be a complete fucking dick <laughs> to Jamie for the entirety of the story. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks this. <laughs> no, I, I was watching this. I'm kind of going, huh? <laughs> like, why are you being such a fucking asshole? And I, this is a, I, I think like this is like a tale of two doctors because it's in the latter half we get, you know, the doctor that we've grown accustomed to over the last, you know, since Trotten's run started, which is like a bit, you know, he's mischievous he's sort of like uh you think they've got the best of him but he actually has a backup plan in place but that's in the latter half of the story and even then it's not fully in the latter half of the story because in all six episodes well with the exception of the second episode where he's unconscious although i'm pretty sure he's thinking dickish things he's pretty much a dick (laughs) throughout this entire story because even like when he meets zoe it's like you know she's very she's very intelligent she's clearly She's clearly very sheltered and she clearly has a certain mentality about her, but it's like, cool, you don't need to be a prick to her either. <laughs> I will say though that like, I think the interactions with Zoe going forward will be very interesting because I think we might get a small bit, I'm hoping, hoping for at least a shade of the relationship that the first Doctor had with Vicky and Barbara. 
you know? Mm. I'm not saying that yet, yeah. but oh, no, but we'll I'm just see. Going forward, going yeah. forward. And the last thing I have to say about him, because I'm going to let you, you know, spit fire, <laughs> is, again, I like seeing how he takes collateral damage to heart with the loss of Gemma. Yeah. But in summation, you're a dick. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to reiterate your summation and expand (laughs) upon it from my perspective. Okay, so the first thing, right, that I'm going to say is... What is with this weird prime directive thing? That he has installed in Jamie, instilled in Jamie when it comes to talking about the TARDIS. This has become such a massive thing for Troughton's Doctor. And we've discussed it before. Them kicking each other in the shins and Victoria getting given out to in Web of Fear. Why is it such... It was never a fucking issue before. Why is it such an issue now? Because I think in the interim, the Doctor read Fight Club. And the first rule of Fight Club is you do not speak about Fight Club. So in this case, the first rule of TARDIS travel is you do not speak about TARDIS travel. But it just gets the... Like, I understand if they're like in the ancient past or whatever and they can't fucking explain it. Hmm. But like when they're on a space station, like... I don't know. It's just something Troughton's Doctor has that Bills never did. And I don't understand, because all it does is cause problems, because why do you want to save the ship? If Jamie had just said, because our ship is inside that ship, problem solved. Yeah. And like from what we understand, the silver carriers are fairly decent size. Like, So they could have a shuttle, like they could have a small... A shuttle entrance. bay or something yeah. like that. You never know. Like, But the, but the fact that he's sort of got this weird, like, prime directive, don't t- tell people type thing, it's like... Dude, you left it floating in the middle of the fucking ocean last story. Didn't give a fucking monkeys about that. Well, and like, I, we, we, was, we, I think we agreed that he had somehow managed to anchor it to the fucking ocean. No, you made up some weird, like, <laughs> anchorage. And you, and, that you, was you. and you didn't counter it, so therefore we agreed. <laughs> but, like, I really hope this stops, because I don't like it. It just causes stupid hassle. And it's just such a contrivance that isn't necessary. Mm. I really hope that we don't see it again. And if we do, don't tell me because I'll just freak out about it when we come to it. Um, The thing about the Doctor in this story, right? So episode one actually wasn't too bad. He wasn't too bad in episode one. A bit short with Jamie, but not too bad. They have the funny back and forth with the food and yada yada. Mm. From when he wakes up, Now, I'm going to give two caveats. He got hit in the head and he inhaled a lot of mercury vapour, which can cause mood swings because it's something that can pass the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. He is an asshole. He is freaking out at Jamie for landing him in the shit for saying the doctor told him to protect the carrier when it's the doctor's fucking ship and the doctor won't let him tell anyone the ship exists. So don't give out to Jamie when to save your ship, he made something up. Like, don't be such a fucking jackass. Mm. It's your fault. You're the one who won't let anyone talk about it for some weird fucking reason I don't understand. So don't be a jackass about it later. And then later on, there's two things that irritate me about later on. Actually, three. The third one is kind of a half thing. 
the first thing is as much as I joke about how he's able to get Jamie to do whatever he wants mm. and Jamie's like oh I don't wanna whatever you are sending your friend who is from the 1860s who doesn't even understand what dictation is wrong wrong, wrong person Jamie's from the 1740s 1760s that's it 17 what even worse you're sending your friend from the 1700s the 18th century you're sending him untrained on a fucking spacewalk with someone he barely knows because you're too fucking busy to go who also isn't trained for spacewalks by the way who all this is the thing right but the fact that like jamie clearly doesn't want to go it clearly scares the shit out of him and the doctor forces or guilts him into doing it because it's Jamie's fault the MacGuffin got left behind. And it's like, no, just just stop. Just, just stop. Stop using your friends and stop emotionally manipulating them to do things they clearly don't want to do and aren't qualified to do. It's a completely separate thing the way they do spacewalks in this story. Yeah. Where they appear to travel untethered across vast distances. <laughs> they, <laughs> like they, they, literally just, they literally just walk. <laughs> it's insane. But you're going to send Jamie and Zoe, who, bearing in mind, they're later described, like we discussed that last week, they were described as teenagers. Mm-hmm. This week, they're described as children. Yeah. In comparison to everyone else on the station, they're described as children and you're going to send them off to get the fucking MacGuffin that fell out of your pocket. Like, come on. What the fuck? Oh, yeah, because that's the thing. If he puts it into the doctor's pocket and and it falls out of the doctor's pocket, is that Jamie's fault? It doesn't matter if it's Jamie's fault. That's completely fucking irrelevant. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant. Like... A, this fucking wheel in space should have more people who are capable of doing this. And if they don't, find another fucking solution. Mm-hmm. Because that was just ridiculous. And then the way he reacted when Leo called him on his bullshit. Like, I want, like, the fact that he's like, but they agreed and they knew the risk. And, oh my God, you whiny little prick. No, you're being called for being irresponsible. You're being called on it for being irresponsible. You endangered Jamie and Zoe, sending them out in a meteor shower. You endangered Gemma by sending her to go help them get ready. And you're just being this stupid, whiny, childish response. Because, like, I think he knows he's in the wrong, but it is really a case of, no, no, dig up, stupid. But, like, it's, it's this thing where, like, the doctor, this doctor has a very sort of childish way of speaking a lot of the time which sometimes it works out quite well in this time it's just like dude you are like 500 fucking years old grow up yeah and the way he reacted with Gemma, like yes he clearly felt the collateral damage right and he clearly felt for her and whatever but he also didn't tell her colleagues straight away. Yeah, it wasn't until... They were talking. And it wasn't until they mentioned, we'll go check on Gemma, that he then told them. Why? 
because Leo had called him out on how he was endangering Gemma a while ago. And now he was proved right. So, for me, I think... I've complained a lot about him. This story... His behaviour with Jamie. Because we've kind of said like, oh, he didn't really treat Victoria very well. But like, he gets along really well with Jamie and stuff. No, in this story, it's just childish entitlement. Mm. And... Yes, he got bonked on the head, and yes, he inhaled mercury vapor. So maybe that explains it. But it was a good performance by Patrick. Yeah. But not a good um, outing for the doctor, in my opinion. Even when he like did his super intelligence stuff at the end, I didn't give a shit. I was like, "You're a dick. Like, <laughs> this is all your fault. All of this is your fault." So, um, before I think we get any even further uh, annoyed, because we're probably going to be talking about this one in the Doctor's Ramblings, how about we move on to the put-upon uh, Jamie McCrimmon? Oh, Jamie. First of all, <laughs> I sometimes love the lines they give Jamie, because they try to show him adapting, hmm. but then they have like two contradictory things in the same story, so... Jamie, how do you know there has got to be mercury on this rocket? Do you even know what mercury is? <laughs> do you know what it's used for? Do you know the horrible pains that people go to make sure that it doesn't just fucking roll about by itself? Like, so they have him say that, but then later he's clearly never encountered a recording system before, which yeah. I call bullshit. You can't have him be Oh yeah, like the Mercury. Surely they have to have Mercury on board because Mercury is used in X, Y, and Z. You can't have them like that and then have them be. Why are you talking to yourself? <laughs> How are you listening to me? How's that? It's like, dude, come on, you're not that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you know, you could say it's all an act, but no, it's not. <laughs> we, it's just... we we know him well enough to know like no, it's not an act. Yeah, it's just I've. I really felt for him in this story. I think he was really put upon by the doctor. I think the doctor treated him like shit. Mm. Um, however, Jamie did a little bit of shit treating himself. Like, the way he treats Zoe. Yeah. It's like, just because she's smarter than you, Jamie, and you're clearly intimidated by that, doesn't mean you can be a dick. Because I, I do you want this coming, like, this is like, going to be like, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm going to get like a sibling, sibling rivalry vibe from them. And it's just like, okay, clearly you are like you're you're the the dumber sibling. <laughs> um like, no, you you have your skill sets in other places, but clearly she's more intelligent than you and like that just kinda of rankles you. So no, is it a case of uh, you know, kinda of shit rolling downhill, you're just lashing up because the doctor the way the doctor is treating you. But then again you knew Victoria, which is why you kind of teased her a bit. You don't know Zoe, so you can't, yeah, all he knows about Zoe is that she's smart. Yeah, you can't really transfer that relationship over straight away, you know? Yeah. And like, part of their back and forth is funny. Like, there are bits that are really funny. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you don't even know this person. Like, is your intelligence... Like, are you that upset with her because she said that you wore women's clothes? Which is a joke I really hope they get over soon because we've heard it enough by now. Yeah. <laughs> 
But also, again, like we mentioned last week, was Jamie a bit of a Stephen when it came to Victoria? You asked me that question last week. I did, yeah. And I said no. I don't think he is. Here, he kind of is. He kind of is. But again, so is the doctor. And Jamie takes his lead Mm. from the doctor. The doctor never tells Jamie to stop. We go kind of go back to it every so often. I don't. I I wouldn't see one. I wouldn't see Doc Bill putting his friends in that much danger. No. And two, I don't see him acting as much of an asshole for that long. Maybe yeah. maybe the initial annoyance, but not as much of an asshole for that length of time. One thing I will say about Jamie that I thought I liked him in the story is like we kind of get to see his ingenuity. Like in terms of, like he's clearly using the time vector generator to like send a code. The guy was thinking because he's sending SOS because he's he is clicking it in some sort of Morse code type thing. Well, he, he's doing a pattern. Yeah, he's doing a pattern. I wouldn't say it's Morse code, but it is yeah, a pattern. Like, but he's doing he's doing something to try and get like a signal out there. Also, as well, you know, the the ingenuity with the you old know, like the quits the quick set plastic to try and like you know at least gum up the rocks a small bit. Oh yeah, like when he. he... <laughs> For a guy who got landed in the shit, yeah, he handles himself really, really well. Um, I did have to laugh though when he used the time vector generator. Vector generator thing. It's like he just told you it was a gun. Yeah. Why are you pointing at a window? <laughs> in space, no less. <laughs> <laughs> like it works. I just imagine, like, you know, what was it? What was it? We're at the 18 minute mark of the show. Jim uses the time vector generator at the porthole. Cue music. End of Doctor Who. <laughs> it's like, what the shit? But no, I think for the way he was treated in the story, I think Jamie himself did very well. He mm. clearly was trying to protect everybody, take care of people, make sure the TARS was done okay. And he was doing the best he could with the information that he felt he was available, he was able to share. Which is great. Um, I think maybe because he was missing Victoria, he was a little bit up on his high horse with Zoe. Mm. And I think the fact that she laughed at him rubbed him the wrong way. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that relationship improves and, you know, that gets better. I think his characterization was a little bit off in terms of the stuff he knows and understands and the stuff he doesn't. Mm. Um, again, I think something like the tape recorder, like I'd get him not understanding maybe the x-ray, but not understanding the tape recorder just seems weird. Again, flashbacks to, um, uh, the, the game we used to play. Someone stranded in 1963 for three months suddenly comes back with all the knowledge of all future oh, yeah. tech. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking dumbass. <laughs> Um, but yeah so I think for Jamie I think this was a I think it was a bit of a mixed bag he had some annoying points but he had some really good points as well yeah uh, just it, it actually kind of for some reason it reminds me of a thing from Blackadder and it was just like you know uh, it's the way of the world Baldrick the world always kicks down I was just you know the the cat pounces on the mouse the mouse it bounces you on uh, or bites you on the behind and what about me well you were the God, last in God's great chain <laughs> unless there's an earwig around here you want to victimize <laughs> oh. oh poor Jamie poor Jamie so we have Zoe but we mm-hmm. also have two story based companions so do we want to do what we normally do and leave Zoe till the end sure cool 
So we have uh, Dr. Gemma Corwin. And now I didn't realize he was Captain Leo Ryan. I put him down as communications. I him as communications. He was communications officer and then he gets promoted to captain at the end. Oh, yeah, cool. Fair enough. So, yeah. Uh, do you want to go with Gemma first or with Leo first? I would go with Gemma first, just because cool. I have to scroll down to see my notes on Leo. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm lazy, you know. Oh, God. Uh, cool. So, with Gemma. I kind of got annoyed when she died. So did I. I think it was... I think it was pointless. It seemed to only be there to redeem the Doctor in some way. But it I, also made him out to be a dickhead yeah, anyway, like yeah. we already mentioned. So, Because like, I was going back through all the stories and I think this is the first time we've ever seen a more than competent female second-in-command would we count Astrid? See, the, okay, sorry, I would, uh, I made it administrative because Astrid is, as we know, Astrid's an agent. She's yeah. a member of whatever. But, like, so in, in terms of, like, an administrative second in command for overseeing a whole kind of yeah. complex, she's, it's the first time that we've ever seen a character like her, I think. And the fact that she was killed off, it, it did kind of piss me off a small bit. It did, particularly because I think the only. I think the only other character recently from an administrative role that we could compare her to was Miss What's-Her-Face from the Ice Warriors. Oh, Garrett. Yeah. Yeah, Miss Garrett. And these two are chalk and cheese. Like, mm. Whereas Miss Garrett was completely incapable of making decisions independently for the most part um, and defaulted back to the computer is everything. Mm. Gemma is quite competent she's very good at her job to a point and i'll come back to that in a second mm. um i think she can be a good leader but i don't think command suits her there are certain people that have leadership qualities but i think they have good leadership qualities in terms of being a, a second yes i think a, she i think she's a very effective yeah she's a very second, f- second. i don't think command suits her yeah um I say that she's good at her job to a point because she's the base doctor slash psychiatrist together. Yeah. She's the chief medical officer, one would assume. Yeah. Uh, and she covers both roles. But clearly your commanding officer is losing his fucking mind. Yeah. It is your duty as second in command and it is your duty as the chief medical officer to relieve him of duty and she lets that shit go on for way too long so she's good at her job you know she notes everything she you know she doesn't antagonize jamie she you know lets things play out naturally you know doesn't rock the boat in terms of tipping someone over the edge or whatever but like to a point and then there comes a point where it's like bitch put your foot down yeah, i think she's slightly too slightly too compassionate yeah. Uh, so funny that you mes- mentioned Astrid. I did get some Astrid vibes off her, mm. in t- in terms of like her intelligence, her bravery, and her compassion. Oh yeah. And which is Astrid? She's more administrative, whereas Astrid was the more action based. Yeah. Two of them. Um. The one, I I have a question for you, right? So, I know not all doctors like to go by doctor. Yes. As a title, however, she is referred to by everybody as dr corwin yeah except the doctor 
who, even though she has treated him and is actively treating him, he calls her Miss and then she corrects him to Mrs. Mm. Did that bother you or is it just me? I, to be honest with you, I, I, didn't, I didn't notice it. And not because like it's a like a sort of ah, I brushed it off that thing. It's like there there was a lot going on in this story that I wasn't liking, so I, I possibly just fucking ignored it because I was pissed off at something else as was occurring in that story at that time. Yeah, like when she doesn't correct him to doctor, so clearly yeah. she doesn't mind being referred to um, by her non-doctoral title. Mm. Um, but one of the reasons why I bring it up is I don't know why it was mentioned. Why make a thing over the fact that her husband is dead? It never comes up again. Yeah. We never, like, he wasn't killed by the Cybermen. Do you know? that there, yeah. There's no connection to the story, so why bring it up? Other than for 50 years later, modern audiences to be like, hey, you should call her by her title, you prick. But, like, I, but I think this was, like, a, yeah, well, yeah, 50 years later. I think this was a thing that, that you know, we kind of noticed with, uh, when David wrote uh, about power and evil. There are certain plot points that are mentioned, and there are certain things that are mentioned. You think that they're going to be big plot points, and they're not. They're just casual statements with some level of importance behind them. So I think, yeah, maybe it's one of those. Yeah, because like, yeah, I think I think it's just like you know, it, it's just not good storytelling. Yeah. Now, to be honest, I don't know if I would have preferred if the doctor said like, "Oh, Miss Corwin," she went, "Actually, it's Doctor Corwin." I don't know if I would have liked that either because I think in modern day that line is overly used and that trope of you know the strong, independent professional correcting the man on on her title or whatever. But it's like everyone else calls her by her title. For me, I think that sort of a line it depends on the delivery given. Yeah, true. If it's said with like a sort of like you know a bit of a raised a raised eyebrow. Then yeah, you're kind of going right. Yeah, fuck it, whatever. But if it's said in kind of a jokingly, you know, manner, it's like I think it gets the character across a bit better, you know. Yeah, but like I, I've made comments before, and I, I know people probably don't like them, and, and I apologize for that. I've made comments before that for all the flack that Doc Bill got, um, Doc Pat comes across as so sexist, <laughs> like. And I don't want him to. I don't like it when I notice it. But since I've started noticing it, now I can't stop. Yeah. And I think it's, again, like, like when I first watched this 10 years ago, right, these conversations weren't happening. Like, well, not as not as prominently. No, yeah, not, no, not as prominently. Like, the, like, there was no huge, I won't say diatribe, it's the wrong word, but there was no huge, like, these big debates and arguments and conversations happening about what older media represented Mm. and i it wasn't until twice upon a time the Mm. peter capaldi's final story that this notion of the first doctor being a sexist you know being a racist being a commercially old man started coming to the fore again and like because he prior to that it was the whole thing of all the classic stories can't hold up to the modern stories because of Mm. effects and yada 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 Whereas here we were coming into a scenario where it's like, oh, the mentality at the time and like the characters at the time, I was like going, no, it's not. But because the first Doctor is the Doctor that was shown from the classic era to the modern audience in a story, he's being highlighted more so than the second Doctor because the second Doctor 
has gone on record as being a a very like has been like a mapping point for a lot of stuff to come like in terms of the, the characteristics he introduced mm. some of the relationships that would come into the fore later on down the line and the fact that he inspired one of the most popular doctors to date mm. so i think unfortunately doc bill is like a smoke screen an unintentional smoke screen you know? I just get really defensive of Bill, and I don't like it. Ah, you like you would like Jesus, like I get defensive, like, and it's not even just it's the same level of defensive like you label towards a show that a lot of people think is like you know oh like stuff from the nineties oh it's so out of date or whatever. It's like, but it's a product of its time, and the characters themselves are not this. It's the situations you know that are written and all that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, like it it has been eye opening going through this again and seeing some of the stuff that the second Doctor is guilty of. Mm. Really bad because Paul from Half Measures obviously said that like Patrick is his favorite, and I'm like, <laughs> I just feel like I'm shitty on Paul's favorite character. I'm like, no. Like we've seen some like fantastic moments with the second Doctor. We we have, too. but, like, yeah, but we true. like it was this, but like there's a I know we're jumping massively the timeline now, but again I'm seeing conversations in the Facebook group over was the tenth Doctor actually as good as people are making him out to be, particularly mm. towards the end of his run, and it's like. Well, you know, okay, going back and taking a more critical look at it, is this a justifiable way that he's acting? Or is it just, yeah, like maybe it's, you know, when you look at it again, it's like, nah, you're a bit of a fucking tool <laughs> type thing. <laughs> so it, it'll be interesting going forward, you know? But one thing that I think that we have done is that we haven't, like we've addressed the thing multiple times. Like we've, we've gone back and we've looked at something that's what we, like now we would like say, like, no, I don't particularly like that aspect of it. But we realize that it's written at a time in which that you know particular mentality is at, and therefore we're kind of on like we don't like, okay we don't want to see it in the modern time, but we understand where it was coming from back then. Also, did I dream this? Because I watched this last night and I watched it quite late. Did Jamie make a smacked bottom comment? Mm, no, I don't think so. Now, bear in mind, it's been a couple of weeks since I watched this because I'm you know I'm ahead. Okay, I'm gonna to have to double check that. One second there. Now, what I'll do is I'll actually, as we're discussing, uh, presumably we're going to move on to Leo, yeah. Yes. All right. I'll actually look up the the transcript for the the episode. Mm. Um, I think he says something to Zoe, and it comes across as a smacked bottom comment. That might not be the exact wording. Okay. So what I'll do is there, one. So your thoughts on uh, Wish dot com's version of Will Riker. <laughs> that's a very adequate or no, I, I've actually started calling him Will Brannigan because he's a cross between Will Riker and Zach Brannigan <laughs> he's a bit of a smooth talker he's a bit of a smooth talker although it works whatever way you might feel about the way he speaks to um, Tanya, Tanya it works and she gives it right back to him in a very Riker Troy way now that I think about it <laughs> Like there, there, there is there is that level because like you know Marina Sirtis is obviously she's is a Greek descent or Cypriot descent, Greek I think Greek. So like she does have that level of like like Mediterranean allure. Mm. So like you know Tanya again like there's always like the trope of like, you're the very sexy Russian and like, Tanya is like you're know, doing a very sexy Russian slash you know Diana Troy type thing. Yeah no I think the thing with Leo is that, okay so on the woman's side. He's a bit of a smooth talker. He gets the woman in the end. And I love how, like, just throughout the story, like, clearly these two know each other quite well. They they live in a space station together, right? 
Um, but like throughout the story, like they're making comments about her nose and there's like all these little backs and forth and like him being like, oh, it's time for me to take a break. And she's like, oh no, I suppose I just have to take a break on my own then. I was like, yeah. oh my God, like the flirting is just like ridiculous. But like, you can see it throughout the stories. Like he, you know, eventually starts putting his hand on her shoulder. She turns into him when scary things happen on screen. And at the end, she's resting her hands on his shoulders when he's talking to Earth. And then she just puts her hand over his hand. And I'm like, oh, you're cute. Yeah, the nose thing is like, you know, like the fact that she says that she has these in- intuitions and like the nose is like, you know, where the intuition is, all that type of stuff. Mm. But there is something very tropic about their, you know, like the the, the brave, you know, space you know, adventurer and his trusty gal sidekick, you know, type that type of thing. And it's like that you'd have expected him like to like stand posing for a victory photo with a laser pistol out and her like clinging on to him. Yeah, I think the difference, though, right, because the other thing that was coming to mind in some respects was Kirk and Rand. Yes. Yeah. From the original series. Yeah. The difference being that Rand and that was a yeoman and operating on a completely different level to Kirk in the hierarchy. Whereas you get the sense that Tanya is the head of her department. Yeah. And Leo is the head of his department. Yeah, she's the ship's astronomer, I think. And yeah, so yeah. Th- they have a level of equality there that you know, even Riker and Troy didn't have. No, do, um, do what it's more like it's more more like Sulu and Uhura. Yeah, if Sulu and Uhura ever got together, yeah, it would but, be but more like them. There was some casual flirting I remember from certain stories. I think hmm. didn't go anywhere. Or Uhura and Scotty in the movies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, which right. I actually think is really adorable. <laughs> I know some people didn't like it, but I loved it. I, 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 it so I, I love Skahura, which I just came up right now. I'm not quite sure I want to keep going with it. <laughs> well, you hottie is like the other option. So. Yeah. Hey, fuck it. James Doohan is pretty attractive. So, um, but, but yeah, um, so about Leo as a person, as a character, yeah. and not just as one aspect. That, not just a piece of meat. He's a piece of eye candy. Um, Leo is a very competent leader. He is. And he is perfectly willing to make the tough choices. It's like, we need to defend the wheel in space. We need to do this. We need to. It's like, oh, but what about Jamie and Zoe? And he's like, well, if, as you said, they knew the risks, I can't be fucking worrying about them. Which comes across as a bit cruel. But given the fact that they're on a space station that regularly gets attacked by meteorites... Mm. and their spacewalk protocol is shit (laughs) (laughs) you need to be decisive and you need to be able to go this is what we're doing I cannot worry about that right now because I have to put this forward it's not does it make him the nicest person in the world but at least he's not humming and hawing over it and deferring to other people on it he's like no this is the choice I'm making this is what we're doing yeah, because like there were times like he came across a bit like a fucking jackass, you know, like is that sort of like, especially in his early interactions with Tanya as the story went on, because you know there were times where she didn't really appreciate the flirting coming her way, mm. and you actually made a very comment there about you know he makes decisions and he doesn't really have time for you know the fucking uh, the feelings of others. He reminds me a small bit of Ty from Battlestar. Yeah. Yeah, like you can come. I across- imagine this is what Ty was like when he was younger. Yeah. And I always remember that 
like when I first watched Battlestar, um, I was very kind of indifferent to Ty. It wasn't until the episode Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, where Ellen first comes on, mm-hmm. and he makes that decision of you know, like, oh, I deployed the um, the, the the flight group. You know, I just had a hunch. I was like, going, okay, fuck it. I'm all in on you. You just made the fucking list of my favorite characters on the show. Mm-hmm. So, like, with Leo, I think it was a case of, as the story went on, you actually started to see that, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, at times you're a bit of a fucking dope, but you are clearly capable of stepping up when the need arises. And he also clearly cares about people because he does come down on Zoe. Yeah. For being like a computer. And so, like, he does take other people's, you know, emotions into account. And I'm pretty sure, like, had something happened to Jamie and Zoe because of him, mm-hmm. he would have felt absolutely horrific about it. But the difference was he, he won't let that interfere with the job at hand. Mm-hmm. And I said already, I completely back him in how he freaked out at the doctor. That was completely oh. warranted. He was well within his right and he was on point with that. No, yeah. I know I agree. Like, bringing him to task, it was needed. Mm. and you know he was there at the very end with his fucking feet up with the girl on one side I was half expecting to have a cigar and brandy on the other hand (laughs) (laughs) so we now we move on to Zoe Harriet or proto Hermione Granger minus the bushy hair minus the bushy hair (laughs) (laughs) so I have a question for you yeah we have a Kirk we have a Mm -hmm. Bones do we now have a Spock (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps we do yes. Um, I don't know if that was in their minds at the time. Possibly not. <laughs> Possibly not. But yeah, I think Zoe is an interesting character, right? And I'm yeah. really curious to see if her backstory gets developed more, because there's interesting hints about her background. Mm. Like she's human. Yeah. Right. She's not an android or anything like that. No matter what. Leo may hint at she's human but clearly she's gone through a specific form of training that Gemma knows about and Gemma has clearly studied that allows her to be this sort of walking library Mm -hmm. and this walking computer and just compute all this information and store this information in her head and do all these calculations and that training like Gemma hints at it and so does Zoe she was trained to set aside her emotions. Yeah. And it's like, how the hell were you... Like, w- did they do that to her from when she was a little child? Like, how was that even done? Because you get the sense from Gemma that, like, some people go off the fucking reservation. Like, so... Because, well, th- like, that's... The, I kind of got the impression, like, that's why I made the spot comment over, like, mm. there is something very Vulcan Science Academy about mm. about the, this whole, like, you know, we were trained since an early age of which to do this. And, like... She's at a loss for almost like you know regular human interaction, mm. like you know when Jarvis is going you know blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like she doesn't really know how to handle it, and like you know she makes the thing like you know when you know the shit hits the fan like what will I do? Mm. Um, going forward, I think it would be very interesting to see how she adapts to situations that don't apply to her wheelhouse, mm. because. Huh, wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, like, in a way, it's almost like a, an inverse Katarina, 
because what we mm. had was a character that was like you know completely you know out of depth in the very first adventure that they were in mm. whereas now with Zoe we have a character that has been bred for a certain lifestyle and is now being taken into the utter unknown where her logical analytical thinking may not apply mm. so did you get the sense that like Gemma was her guardian on the ship maybe not official but maybe self-appointed mm. the, like, she definitely reported to Gemma yeah. I, th- I, had a f- I have a feeling that there is a certain fondness by crew members for Zoe in the sense of like um, almost like you know the way certain certain uh, members of the, the bridge crew were fond of uh, Wes in TNG yeah so something similar to that I wonder if we'll get a shut up Zoe <laughs> um, I knew you were going to mention it yeah but I I, I hate that line I, I hate that line too like you know fucking as bad as the first season as though no, not bad as cringy as times the first season of TNG was I did enjoy a lot of Wesley stuff. So did I. Yeah. He was a 15-year-old on a starship. Cool. Let him off. And if you ever listen to this, Mr. Wheaton, or Will, we actually do quite enjoy your work. So We really do. Yeah. Please come to Ireland at some point so we can meet you. Thank yes, you. exactly. What was I going to say to you? Um, I, like, there's a huge potential in this character. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we she gets sidelined and that character potential is wasted. Or, like, it'll be interesting because I think this is the... F- it's almost gone back to when it was the Doctor, Vicky, and Steven. Because we now have two big brains on, mm. on the ship. And yeah. it'll be interesting to see how the dynamic changes. Because we saw how Steven acted when there was two big brains. Jamie, I think, has a bit more cop on. He probably will still, you know, bit fucking sulk every now and again, but I can't see him. Uh... I am curious to see if the Doctor will treat Zoe the way he treated Vicky, or the way he treated Victoria, or Dodo versus Polly, or is it going to be something new? I don't think he's going to have the same relationship with her that he had with Barbara, because no. the dynamic is just different. And obviously Susan, the dynamic was completely different. Um... But I wonder, like, I, you'd want it to be closer to Vicky, but hopefully it won't be as it won't be as far as Victoria either. No, there are certain there are certain character relationships that you know you can't replicate. While mm. there are certain ones that seem very very similar, mm. and yeah, I don't think you'll be able to replicate the mostly because there's no character that has been written to be the exact same as Barbara. Like, Barbara to date is probably the oldest companion that we've had. I think her and Sarah Kingdom are probably of an age. Probably. But... I actually, I saw someone post on Tumblr the other week, right? And I nearly jumped onto their thread. I was like, no, leave them alone. They were like, you know, um, watch Classic Who and you are sentencing yourself to following the developing romantic relationship between two middle-aged teachers. And I'm like... Middle age, they're in their thirties. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh Jesus! Like, what sort of phones are they using? Are they corded? <laughs> oh, oh, Christ Almighty! So, I think it's time to move on. Yes, I think it is. So, we have our prominent character this uh, story, which is Mister Jarvis. 
Mr. Jarvis Bennett. Yes. Jarvis is his first name, <laughs> not his last name. But I don't know. It was like when people say Mr. Tom or Mr. Whatever. Crazy leader, take one million. Crazy leader, take <laughs> one million. I am sick and tired of seeing this character. Um, I get what they were trying to go for, that the stress became too much for him or whatever. But clearly from the off, this guy had a fucking screw loose. Yeah, like... This is what would happen if Clint from the Ice Warriors actually caved under the pressure of his job. Yeah, it's just... I, I don't know. I, he's a crazy leader. He does crazy shit. He doesn't do any damage. Good job. Yeah. Like, it's... There was just He's some, harmless. He, he is. Like, you know, he, he kind of... I get the impression, like, that... He's given like he's made to feel more important than he actually is, in the sense of like you know, everyone else is capable of doing their jobs without minimal in- influence by Jarvis. But I mean, they just give like Jarvis, you know, like a fake report, or like they give him like I don't know, like a little kind of Fisher Price looking <laughs> uh, workstation that allows him to feel. I'm trying of... to make, make him sound like Henry Blake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, there is a lot of Blake. I think there is a bit of Blake to him. Blake crossed with Frank. Frank's paranoia. Yeah. And when Frank went off the deep end at the end. Yeah. Are, are we entering flag territory again here? I don't, I'm don't. i not quite sure. No, I don't think we're in flag yeah. territory. Um, we're, yeah. we're literally just Henry and Frank. Cool. Yeah, so I think when time, the Time Travelling Team podcast comes to an, an end in the next amount of years, I think we're starting a MASH podcast. <laughs> um, so, uh, how was I going to say... Um, Okay, I have a question for you based on uh, Jarvis. Yeah. At the very end, mm-hmm. his course of action, mm. what do you think inspired it? I think it was some aspect of his original self coming through. But like, do you think it was a potential, the loss of a potential loved one? Do you think it's the fact that a friend of his? Do you think it was he feel he felt so powerless that he this is his one? chance to at least try and take some of the power back I wouldn't class it as a loved one I think that's going a bit too far but I think I think a part of him realised that he had failed yeah to do his job mm-hmm. and someone else had died in what probably should have been in his mind his place yeah and so he's going to try and rectify that that would be my read on it because like <laughs> Like, like, I would be very interested to see or to know, like, when Gemma was trying to get bring him back to reality and when she was, like, caring after him, like, how much of that was bleeding through? Like, was there, was it, like, in one ear what the other? Or was, like, he understanding what was going on, but he just couldn't function? I think it was a type of psychosis. I think it was possibly filtering through, but, like, he was just in shock. Yeah. So, like, because, like, again, like, if that was the thing, like, you know, all the kindness that she had, you know, given him and all this type of thing, was it trying to get revenge for Gemma or was it literally just kind of like, no, another pe- one of my people have died. It's time for me to try and. I think it was, I think it was probably closer to another one of my people. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not revenge for Gemma. But, yeah. like, he and Gemma seem to have a fairly good relationship anyway. Like, yeah. a little bit back and forth, in, you know, but, like, mm. it wasn't a bad relationship by any stretch. No, like, I mean, like, when he, when she asked him to come off the floor so he could discuss matters in private during the middle of a crisis, he, yeah. made, he made time for her. 
you get the sense that they're friendly and they yeah. have a good working relationship. Yeah. So I think it was that. Yeah, because can you make you know, go back to was it Cutler in the Tenth Planet? If Barkley had asked him to take off the floor, he would have probably had Barkley shot or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, moving on to the villains of the piece. Yeah, Paddy, what came first, the Cyberman or the egg? The Cyberman-like creature that laid the egg? Because <laughs> that's what you always used to answer when that, that fucking chicken or egg <laughs> scenario came up. <laughs> No, but seriously, why are Cybermen suddenly hatching out of eggs? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, and uh, eggs that can go through metal. But see, but this is the thing, like, you know, are they... Are they... See, this was what was really confusing, right? Is that this, you know, because don't, don't forget, like, you know, it's the Cybermats, and Cybermats also grew from these little fucking eggs. Are they like T-1000s, where like once a certain amount of it gets together, it forms the... Um... I have no clue. I think I think the problem is because we're just watching stills for this. Hmm. Um, we don't get an idea of scope. <laughs> yeah. Like, how big were these spheres? How big is the station? Um. So, do the spheres get bigger? From, like, I think Loose Cannon. I don't know if the BBC did it, but Loose Cannon they had they did their own version of animation for one of the spheres sections, and what it has is that imagine. A coffin-like container mm. having about six orbs, about the size of a standard football. Yeah, which which, which is like okay. So do they get bigger? Like I, how do, how does this work? I don't. I think with the fact with the number of orbs versus the number of Cybermen and Cybermats we saw, I have a feeling that they all kind of coalesce together to form like some sort of a. It's look who's talking. I think that's what it is. <laughs> And now I've got the Beach Boys stuck in my head. And Get around. Yeah, no, I, I can't hear, I can't listen to those, that, that song. I don't understand that song either. Yeah, no, like, I can't listen to that song without Bruce Willis' head going, yeah, come on, yeah, man, come on, let's get it going. Fuck's sake, I love those movies, but still that part haunts me. Um. Anyway, the Cybermen. Yeah. Also, what I will say to the credit of the Cybermen, no other race are capable of doing the robot while walking in space. Or look more like fucking Scooby Doo villains as they're like trying to sneak up on Shaggy, because it's literally the whole huge, yeah. huge steps. Do, 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 yeah. Do. Um. Also, so this is the first episode that they've had their sort of what later become their signature sort of tear mark on the eye. Yeah. <laughs> but did you notice they kind of had like a little mouth dribble <laughs> as well? <laughs> oh, why do the Cybermen cry? <laughs> <laughs> because they were dribbling their food and someone came out to them. <laughs> well, it's like they have the little tear things on the eyes and then like just like in the middle of their mouth there's like a little semicircle. It's like, why are you dribbling? <laughs> I don't know. So my thing with the Cybermen in this, I don't know about you, but I think this is probably the weakest Cybermen that we've seen, in my opinion. Their plan was shit. It was so convoluted. It's so incredibly convoluted. It's so incredibly convoluted. Like, Kit slash David, what were you smoking like? I, I don't know. Um, because, okay, what is it? We make a Stargo supernova. We then sabotage... So, we make a, no, we want to take over the wheel so we can use its radio signal to guide us to Earth. We need to infiltrate it. So, we'll set a Stargo supernova. 
infiltrated, sabotages weaponry so that they need to come over and get us to help infiltrate it more. At which point... No, we'll set a star to a supernova. Yeah. Then a week later, we'll turn up on another ship that we have taken over and set 87 million miles off course as opposed to going to the place that this ship was originally meant to go to anyway, which surely also has a relay to Earth. Yeah. So the point. We'll then sneak on board with like the Cybermats. We'll sneak on board the space station. We will damage their power supply for their weapon. Then we'll set another star to go supernova. So they'll think, oh, we could look at that rocket and see if they have any. So they then go back onto the rocket where we'll mind control people to get them to take us over onto it. But what the, what the really kind of weird thing was, right, the end goal was to sabotage the communication equipment so that incoming messages couldn't come in. Why not still have the mystery ship show up infiltrate the fucking place without the whole need of the Bernalium thing because apparently like you know you can just grow on the fucking you can grow the cybermats and have them sabotage the communications equipment it, it, it was just it was like what were they smoking <laughs> like I what that know. like it's I don't know I, yeah. I think it was their weakest performance for me yeah because you had like 10 planet moon base and two of the cybermen which were all like really really good stories, mm. whereas like this one, yeah, it's it's not the best, no. and I and like it had the potential to be really good, except for the fact that the plot was very convoluted. Mm. Uh, but I think we've kind of we've delved into the overall aspect of it here now. Um, there are some interesting new elements to the lore of cyber society, though, like the cyber planner. I am curious about that. I'm not. I don't know what that. We've had a cyber leader up to now. Like this, you can't just put cyber in front of something. What I and make it a thing. Like what? No. What I like about the cyber planner is the fact that it. it, it okay, we we knew that the whole thing about the cybermen was that they wanted to remove the weakness of the flesh, and obviously then they start removing their emotions and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But I think what we have to remember is that they're not like hyper intelligent just because they're cyberized. So having like a cyber planner, so still kind of bowing to a, you know, a super, you know, like a supercomputer essentially, um, I think it adds an interesting layer to them. Yeah, maybe. I think it's just because I, every time we see them, they're adding a new layer, which yeah. In some ways, is good, but the same time, it's like let what you've created settle. Yeah, true. Do you know? Um, although I will say, big improvement to the cybermats. Yeah, they're getting better. They don't have the googly eyes. They don't have the googly. They still have the weird skirt, but they yeah. don't have the googly eyes. Oh, so or the so. billy bugs as they were described. <laughs> when Jamie wears the skirt, it's fine, but when we wear a skirt, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> species that's what that is <laughs> like i think yeah no there, there is a, there is like it's interesting to see new layers to recurring villains mm. and I, that's why i said like you open the daleks you know like granted like the daleks visually they stay the same but we got to see new aspects of their levels of technology or their society 
whereas here it's like we need to reinvent them because otherwise people might be bored and i'm like well no like i'm like while it is interesting to add new layers let the ones you have settle first yeah do you know like you don't need to introduce this new level of complexity every time Mm. like i think it would have been kind of cool to see like the cyber controller relaying mission information from this excuse me have the cyber controller relay information from the cyber planner to the cyber men so that way like we at least know that it's like oh yeah cool so there is a chain of command here type thing you know mm. will what will the next the cyber story bring us i wonder i want to see a cyber t-rex <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, as we said, very weird character discussion. Some very interesting uh, concepts that have come up. Bold doctor. Bold doctor. So, we're now going to give a score out of five, uh, myself and Trish uh, each. So, Trish, how about you give us your score, first of all, and your final thoughts? Okay. You hit on it towards the end of your Cybermen discussion. It's a solid story in theory. (laughs) But it didn't really do it for me. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, the doctor was a prick. Yeah. And when the doctor's a prick, I, I have I have issues getting into the story when I can't like my protagonist. It's very annoying. But for me, overall, this is a bad version of the moon base. We've seen this story before. It's called the moon base. Yeah. And it was done a lot better (laughs) in the moon base. (laughs) We had, you know, we've seen this sort of crazy incompetent leader several times over. Like, we've seen all these characters before and done better. So it's like, why are you telling the same story again? And I mentioned last week, I am done with base under siege. Mm. We've seen it too much. But I was like, oh, this is based under siege in space. Be interesting. But I've seen this story before. Yeah. It's called the moon base. <laughs> like, <laughs> I distinctly remember it. <laughs> the same doctor was in it and Jamie was in it. Like, I've seen this one before. Um, I think it was done better. Like, Gemma was cool. It's always an interesting addition. But, like, overall, this is the moon base light. Mm. So... Well, I hate to say it because this season has been phenomenal. It's a 2.5 for me. Like, just watch the moon base. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say, David, we meet again, but not the best addition to your resume in this week's no. story, I don't think. Um, one thing, okay, now, as much as I give out, give out, that's right, I've said give out, that's where I am at this point in time. As much as I gave out about the doctor being a prick, I did like the. Um, I like to see the acting between Fraser and Pat and Patrick, because they're like obviously they work really well together. And when mm. we see when they, obviously the, doc, the doctor and Jamie have great chemistry, but I'm always interested to see when characters that get on really well have a falling out in some way, shape, or form, because you get to see the the relationship flipped, and you get to see how like 
the level of believability to it, you know? Mm. Like that time, again, going back to the RPG that we were in, where you and I convinced everyone that we were fucking mad at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still convinced our neighbours thought that was real as well. Yeah. Um, so, that's that, I'd like to see that. Because it's nice to see like the, the acting flesh out a small bit. And like we've seen like time like in especially in modern who, you know, where uh like Chris Eccleston and David Tennant more so spring to mind. But like they've had these moments where they lash out. Mm. And it makes for some very interesting stuff going forward. So mm. I did like that between the Doctor and Jamie, but what I didn't like was the fact that it just kept fucking going. And he never apologized. No, he didn't. It's great to see a new companion come in that has like buckets of potential because there's so much there to work with. Um, unfortunately, plot, yes, it is convoluted um, moon base in space. Um, and with the exception of Gemma, the supporting cast was a bit weak mm. compared to some of the other supporting casts we've seen this season. In the Or in the moon base. In the movie, <laughs> uh, they didn't have their version of Robson and Robert and Robert, <laughs> or sorry, Hobson and Robert. Uh, up on the wheel. And I, the fact that we, I think the fact that we spent about maybe two minutes talking about it, I would have liked to have a bit more explanation as to how the Cybermen can grow from an the, egg. the spheres. Yeah. So that is that is my, my, my issue with stuff. It's like, if you introduce a new element, try and explain it. Mm. You have six episodes of which to explain it. Unlike, say, The Fury from the Deep, where I like the mystery of the creature because we'd never seen the creature before. We'd never seen what it was. So therefore, the mystery surrounding it is okay. But when you have, a, when you have an established villain coming in and you add another layer to it, it's like when, you know, you had the Klingons in the original series and then on comes, you know, the motion picture and it's like, Wait a minute, who, who are these fuckers? <laughs> and then it's like, yo, you come to Deep Space Nine and Warp is like, we don't like to talk about it. That's <laughs> like, okay, cool. We'll just have to wait till Enterprise explains things away. Um, you know, it's, it just, it's, it's kind of frustrating. But I think I, I went with a 3.5. Sorry, I went with a 3 out of 5. Not 3.5 out of 5. I went with a 3 out of 5. And that's mostly because I liked the, the acting by or core two. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I was originally going with a three. Yeah. When I originally did it. Um, last night I had written down three. <laughs> yeah. But when I was transcribing my notes today, I was like, it, I was giving it a three because this season has been so strong. Mm. But this story itself is weak. And, you know, Maybe if I wasn't tired of Base Under Siege, I'd think differently. Maybe if I hadn't been, after watching the Doctor with um, Victoria and sidelighting her the whole time, I'd think differently or whatever. But I, I can't change the order that I've watched it in now. Yeah. So when I was thinking about it today and I was transcribing my notes, I wrote down the three and then I was like, Do I actually, it's not. Odds are I probably won't watch this one again. Yeah. Um, now, in saying that, if they animate it, no, maybe I'd give it a go just to see what they do with the Cybermen and the Cybermats and how they come from the egg and stuff like that. But like, th- that's more so because I'm a completionist. They've actually animated like a twelve-minute edited version of the first episode. 
Mm. It's on the faceless ones DVD, I think. Yeah, but like, if they did a full like yeah. like faceless ones oh, type, yeah. well, type well, animation, yeah. then well, like, I, then I, maybe. But I made the vow to buy any animation that comes out because my coppers will go towards eventually, hopefully, funding Marco Polo. <laughs> this is true, and, and they have just announced they're doing Galaxy Four. Yes, which. I don't know why, but fuck it. Um, because oh, someone pointed out going, oh, well, you know, it's to, you know, start doing more, you know, completing more Cardinals run. I'm like, well, if you... The Crusade. The Crusade, you'd have a full season, <laughs> which you could release on D- DVD and everyone could watch, you know, straight from Planet of Giants, skip the Space Museum and get, watch the chase. Um, yeah, so I was looking back at our scores there and... This is, I was thinking, look at specifically at the season finales, as it were. Mm. The only other season finale that I think we didn't rank as high uh, as the others was The War Machines. Yeah, and even I ranked this lower than The War Machines. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it's, but I, I, I have a feeling, like, I as much as I love it, as much as I love the, the, thing, the type of, you know, the base under siege genre, having... What had we? We had six stories this season? Seven? Um, no, no, seven stories. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, seven. Having. Se- I wouldn't really call two of the Cybermen based under siege because they're inside the enemy base as such. Mm. So, okay, we'll say there's like. You had five out of the seven stories were based under siege. And the last. And like you had the Web of Fear, which was fucking great. Mm. And then you had Fury from the Deep, which wasn't as strong. And now you've got the Wheel in Space, which is a kind of a rehashed version of the story. I think I was experiencing a small level of burnout as well with the with the concept. Mm. Like if it had been every second story or every third story, then you know it's it's cool. As much as I love it, but you know One thing I will say is we've been talking about how oh my god oh season five is so strong it's gonna take over seasons one and season two no it didn't yeah yeah <laughs> it fucking fell flat at the finish <laughs> yeah um in terms of combined scoring season one is still in the lead then season two then season five then season four then season three yeah oh, the john wilds era fuck the john wilds era <laughs> Uh, oh no! And so that brings us to the end. Yes. So we finished season five, not quite with a bang, with a bit of a splutter, but with some good potential going into season six, which is always good. So join us next week as we will kick off season six with the Dominators. Sounds interesting. Yeah, you, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Wish dot com's version of the Dominion. <laughs> Uh, I I was thinking something completely different. <laughs> were you saying something more salacious? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll just have to see if there's a lot of letter involved next week. <laughs> <laughs> Until next week, guys. Bye.